Okay, Mallory, thank you for sitting down with me. Uh, we are here in Brimness recording this, and we have your lovely dog, Eddie, uh, lying down here with us. It's taking a snooze. So if you hear some wrestling around, that's her dog. Um, but he is very comfortable right now. And uh, so, yes, getting into this, my first question for you, we've been working together now for a month as I've been here at the museum. Um, but I'm also curious myself, too. I don't think I really know your entire story of your connection to your Icelandic roots. So my question for you would be just sort of sharing that. What is your family connection to Iceland and your Icelandic roots? Sure. So my Icelandic roots are through my dad's side. Uh, my dad's dad was, you know, what you'd consider, I guess, full-blood Icelandic, but mm. born in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. uh, so so first generation born there? Yes, he yeah. was. Yeah, from that side he was. Mm. Um, but his mother was born in Canada. Okay. Right after her parents immigrated, uh. was my understanding. So one side, one of his parents was kind of a more recent immigrant mm -hmm. than the other. I have the same actually with my family. Okay. Is that same sort of one uh, step earlier or later on, on one side than the other. Yeah, so he was born, my grandfather was born in North Dakota, but I know he didn't speak English uh, until he was about six years old and went to yeah. school okay. because he was just out on the farm mm -hmm. with all of his Icelandic speaking mm -hmm. relatives and neighbors. Yeah. Um, and he unfortunately passed away when I was very young. I was only four years old. Mm. Um, and so I don't have a lot of memories of him speaking Icelandic okay, or yeah. anything, but yeah, yeah. he's my kind of most direct mm. contact to my Icelandic mm. lineage. Mm -hmm. I guess because I had grown up knowing that, I found out about the Snorri program through the fargo Moorhead Icelandic Club, um, probably through Sunna. It was one of the Yemkomst mm. Festival, mm. Scandinavian... The events that they mm. were doing there and saw a brochure for the Snorri program mm -hmm. and ended up doing that in 2011. Mm -hmm. Changed the whole course of my <laughs> life having done Snorri. Yeah, yes, yeah, certainly. And I think for many others as well. But what about other side of your family? Do you have like any understanding of your genealogy with other sides that are non-Icelandic? I've traced back um, with the help of other relatives who have done some of this work before mm. and then done some of my own research in addition to what had already been done. Mm -hmm. um, I know my mom's side is Lithuanian on her father's side mm. and then kind of a mix of Norwegian and German and Scots-Irish mm -hmm. on the other side. My On my father's side, it's, you know, the half Icelandic grandfather mm -hmm. and then a Norwegian grandmother. Mm. Okay. Um, so I've been interested in those, but for whatever reason, Iceland just kind of took the yeah. the front of the list for right. me i mean that i don't know if it's because the records are easier to locate or you know just searching everything is <laughs> everything is just kind of lined up in the searching there uh -huh. in an easier more direct way yeah no that's that's really why i ask is because it does seem like because uh, it's the same for me on my dad's side it's sort of just this mix of a bunch of different european ancestry and it just seems much harder to trace those lineages, whereas the Icelandic side of the family, my mom's side, like we have access to this incredible database. And even if you didn't have that, you can kind of just come to Iceland on your own and just start asking around. And over time, you get access to the books and these different things. And it seems like you're able to trace these connections. And then also the relatives that you meet here seem very 
welcoming to that as well. I'm sure it would be the case in other cultures too, to a degree. Very likely. But just that through line to the Icelandic connection is much more developed. And uh, at the museum here, a lot of people are coming here from North America, mm -hmm. so they're aware of that connection and they're coming here with a purpose to trace those things. But then a lot of people are coming here as tourists from different parts of the world. And they're not necessarily familiar with that genealogy aspect of Iceland. And I sort of talk to them about this and explain these things to them. And often they're quite surprised with it as well. And it really does seem like this side of things is not as developed in many other cultures, at least on yeah. the European side of things, uh, in terms of tracing your ancestry. And so I it is very interesting. I think part of that too, uh, and we talk to guests about this sometimes, is that you know, Iceland hasn't had major wars yes, right. or uh, events that have destroyed church records the mm -hmm. way other parts of Europe have um, with major world wars and, and different things being bombed and, uh, and burning. And being lost in history, yeah. And then the aspect of just a smaller population, too, to track. Much I think manageable. that is really a major factor. Mm -hmm. And then just the general interest that Icelanders have always seemed to have with record keeping. And then the fact that you can only trace Icelandic history back so far. Right. There's right. A, a end date, really. Yes. Yeah. Which, again, I don't know any other, like, uh, human cultures that really have that. No. Off the top of my head, at least. Most other cultures, it seems to go so far back that it's lost in prehistory. Right? It's hard to right. trace back. And, I mean, Iceland has that, too, because before Iceland, it was tracing that ancestry to other countries, right, uh, other places. Norway and mm -hmm. Sweden and Denmark mm -hmm. and the British Isles, definitely, yeah. Very interesting. Now, I think you were kind of going down this direction uh, when you're talking about your Icelandic connections and why you felt more connected and have traced more of your connection to Iceland. So then why Hofsos? Why Hofsos for you? But also, and this question has come up to me working in the museum, why Hofsos for the Emigration Center as well? Sure. So you can take a stab at both of those directions. Why Hofsos for you? Why have you ended up here? What interests you about this place? And why has this become the place for the Emigration Center in the way that it has? Um, well, I guess I'll answer the personal side first. So for me, it was that Snorri connection. Um, and I did the Snorri program in 2011 and then came back every summer after that, visiting my Snorri family and other friends that I had made during the program. And then in 2016, I was able to do the Snorri alumni internship. And when I did that, uh, that gave me that direct connection mm -hmm. to Hofsos. Uh, yes, I had visited here for two days mm -hmm. on the Snorri program, uh, but I was with the group and just kind of lost in that like Snorri program <laughs> glow of mm -hmm. traveling and being with mm -hmm. these, you know, fellow Snorris, mm -hmm. uh, just having the time of our lives. And so when I found out about the internship and, you know, they said, okay, go and live and work in Hofsos for the summer. I thought, okay, great. I just mm -hmm. want to do like whatever I can mm -hmm. that will get me back to Iceland on a deeper level mm -hmm. than just, you know, visiting. Mm -hmm. And so I came here and I guess it's ultimately about the people that I met, mm -hmm. you know, if it hadn't been for Valgerd and Gunna who mm -hmm. run the museum and their you know, their willingness to really take me in as part of the family and show me around and involve me in all of the various projects and jobs and fun stuff that they do mm -hmm. from day mm -hmm. to day. Just um, the lifestyle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I got kind of completely pulled into that and I found the the fun 
chaotic <laughs> lifestyle of that yeah. just hard to resist i guess yeah Chatteretist to some degree yeah Chatteretist, yep uh-huh. Uh-huh. uh-huh yeah so why hopsos for the museum why did this place end up here to begin with so my understanding of that is um kind of a combination of the bill Holm books that i've read or it comes mm-hmm. from that and also from talking to Valger. Mm. and it isn't because a lot of people left from hopsos more than other places um i think there were about 1400 people mm. from the skagafirda region who immigrated that we know of mm. maybe more sure. um but Valger just had the dream and the idea and he made it happen mm. so it's a picturesque little village you can imagine down here in the old harbor maybe what it would have been like mm-hmm. for these people hopping onto a ship mm. and leaving the only country they'd ever known um it isn't in some industrial area in the middle mm. of Reykjavik or mm-hmm. Akureyri or something you've got I don't know, the nature around you, and it's easy to forget mm. modern times here right, a little right. bit. Yeah. But truly, it was just the opportunity, kind of right place, right time. Yeah. Hofsos was having a bit of a, an economic lull, I think, mm-hmm. and there were just a bunch of old fishery buildings sitting with nothing to do, and they were. it was the perfect place to just either knock them down or rebuild what could mm-hmm. be rebuilt mm-hmm. and create the center. So Valger and Gunnar and their team, I mean, they just did a beautiful job uh, reinvigorating the town. Yeah, no, certainly. And something you just made me think of there when you're talking about the emigration center being here. Yeah, some folks have asked me, like, was this a major port? Like, did everyone leave from here? And the answer is no, and the port they would have left from if they were emigrating from Hopsos directly would have been uh, Sotherkroker. Yep, Sotherkroker, yeah. But uh, I think that's a very important point that you said, because this is sort of a more isolated village, it is more country, it's more just kind of out in the middle of nowhere to a degree, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all. It's very beautiful how it is out in the middle of nowhere. It's wonderful. Um, But I think having this environment makes more sense because the people that were leaving they were coming from all over the island so that port where they left from was just a small part of their journey that's just where they were going to take the trip that's not always where they were heading from maybe some people were living in those places to begin with but most of the stories that i know and most of my ancestral connections here they're coming from the farms they're coming from the places more out in the middle of nowhere in the regions like around Hafsos would have felt to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you know, you assume, okay, they would have gone to the closest port. Mm. And in many cases, that was true, that if they were living in and around Hafsos or in Skagafirther, maybe they went to Sotherkroker because Mm. that was the nearest. But I think it also had to do with the schedule of the ships. Yes. And if it made more sense for them to go, you know, living near Hafsos, if a ship was coming sooner or at a better time mm. for them in Akari, maybe they mm-hmm. would travel further to Akari instead. Right. So I think it wasn't necessarily convenience of location as uh-huh. much as just what worked for each individual or each individual family the best. Yeah, it's not so much like you're going to the closest bus stop. No. Right? It's like you're going to the closest opportunity. And I think the Brazil story of that emigration saga mm-hmm. drilled that home for me. Just reading about the different times, like, okay, we're going to get a boat for this many people at this such and such date, but then it never panned out. Right. And all these different sort of false promises and different ideas that people had. And it makes you realize, like, how difficult the logistics side 
of all these things would have been. And then thinking too, just about how word got around at that time, even just the aspect of going to North America. You're going based on like a pamphlet that you've read, maybe at some point some letters that you've gotten from family that have went there. And certainly uh, the museum explains that once there was word of the new Iceland settlement, that made it a bit more, I'm sure, comforting. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, New Iceland. Yeah, like that's good marketing in right. a sense, and right? And you know it we've got a built-in community mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. waiting for us there. People who will speak our of... language and help guide us. You know, they've gone ahead and kind of paved the way a bit. Right. But still, what a mystery. Even just having that. Today, before you travel somewhere, you can go on Google Maps. You can traverse the streets digitally. Yep. You can see everything. You can call people there. You can meet people. You get all this information ahead of time that you can be quite sure of where you're going and what you're doing. But then it was such a mysterious time, and uh, I just can't help but imagine what it would have felt like going on such an adventure to, to emigrate and to start a new life. Yeah, it's, it's something to think about, really. Yeah, a lot of bravery uh, yeah. is kind of, that's the main trait that I mm-hmm. have to think of when I think of these people. They just were going off into the unknown and hoping for the best, truly. Yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, I think uh, all of these things are explained so well in a place like the museum here. It's it's really a lot to grasp, you know, just trying to imagine what it would have been like for these different people and for your own relatives. And I think it's something that really does take time and it takes personal travel to start to relate as well. There's a sailboat actually in the harbor here. And uh, I was just kind of thinking earlier today, like, what's their story? Like, where are they coming from? What are they doing as they're sailing around here? Until you start to travel around and experience what it's like to go out into the unknown, can't really relate to what it would have been like. And even when you are traveling today, it still is hard to relate to what it was like traveling a hundred years ago. The challenges that we have traveling today is, Mm -hmm. oh no, my flight is delayed an hour, Uh you know, but you know, you're guaranteed to get where you're going. Mm -hmm. Eventually Mm -hmm. these people would have, uh, who immigrated would have sold everything they owned and have their belongings maybe in, you know, a bag or a trunk or two. Mm -hmm. And if the ship didn't come, Mm. they had nothing, you know, what did they, maybe they had relatives they could fall back upon and and wait with them until, Mm the next ship came or or something but you know there was no guarantee for them yeah maybe you remember this story uh but i was reading this somewhere in the museum and all the stories start to blend into one for me but it was about someone who had sold the farm and seemingly like sold everything that they had besides Mm -hmm. their personal possessions Mm -hmm. and then when it came down to it the boat didn't come and i forget if they just had to wait for another boat but just imagining that like here you are like i was trying to relate to myself if i sold all my belongings and bought a ticket to come to Iceland to live here for the summer. And then for whatever reason, my plane didn't come. But even that, like you said, it will come the next day or there'll be another plane. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to have that, to have no place to go back to. And then the boat doesn't come. Right. Like talk about putting all your eggs in one basket, you know? Yeah. They had to kind of give up everything in order to even buy a ticket to get to the next spot and they'd show up then in Canada or the US or or Brazil in some cases with next to nothing. And yeah, they had to build a life from scratch, which is impressive in a lot of ways. Yeah, impressive. And uh, uh, in many ways as well, I think it's kind of like an eternal story of humanity. So I think it's so cool having this connection through the museum 
about the Icelandic emigration. Mm -hmm. Because for myself, for you, and for many others who are of Icelandic descent in North America or elsewhere in the world, this is our personal family history, so it resonates a bit more. But even if you don't have that Icelandic connection, you know, North America is, these are countries built of immigrants, right? And just throughout the world as well, like all of humanity is a story of emigration, immigration, just human migration, people moving around, going into the unknown, always. Like that is literally who we are as a species. And so these stories really just uh, paint the picture of what it means to be human. And uh, Hopsos as well is a very fascinating place uh, for you. How long have you been living here now, actually? Um, living here just over a year full time. And okay. before that, I had done summers since 2016 for at least some length of time. The longest would have been, I guess, uh, when I was here for the internship, I was here for like 10 weeks. And then, yeah, the summers between 2016 and, and now have been anywhere from, I don't know, probably two or three weeks up to six or eight weeks okay. Yeah, each summer. Did you say that you've been to Iceland every summer since the Snorri program? Yeah, I think I missed 2012 okay. or 2013. I missed one of the years right after the two years after the Snorri program. No, I came in 2012. I've missed one summer, but I made up for it by coming in the winter instead. So how were you making all those trips? Like, what were you doing? Were you still connected to relatives that you met here? or? Yeah, so I would... Uh, kind of do a mixture of staying with friends that I had made mm -hmm. in Reykjavik area or mm -hmm. friends that I knew from Minnesota who were mm -hmm. doing programs over here or had moved um, temporarily or permanently. And yeah, each summer I would go and spend at least a chunk of time with my Snorri relatives mm -hmm. out in the East Fjords. Yeah. So that was wonderful. And then once I made the Hofsos connection mm -hmm. just to come up here mm -hmm. for part of the time. Yeah, that certainly helps in terms of budgeting as well. Definitely. Um, Iceland is on a lot of top 10 lists in the world, as mm -hmm. we've been talking about. They're one of the countries with the cleanest drinking water. Mm -hmm. They're one of the safest countries in the world. Some of the most waterfalls in the world, this, that, and the next thing. And certainly many per capita stats about Icelanders as well. But something that is also high on lists for is one of the most expensive countries in the world mm -hmm. uh, for traveling. And uh, so I really think that without these connections helped through Snorri and then now just continued through like family connections, through friendships, without those spending as much time in Iceland as I have already mm -hmm. would just be not feasible for me in this position currently in life in terms of financially. Right. Um, but there's definitely ways around that. You make friends and you have relatives. And then as I've found living off of just buying groceries here, not eating at restaurants, I've been doing very well. I just checked the balance of my card and uh, I have, yeah, not yet spent half of my sort of budget for being here. Brilliant. And I've already been here for a month. Yeah. And I still have quite the stock of uh, at least frozen foods uh, here currently. So I'm doing quite well. And once you're shopping at grocery stores and not even just the uh, discount markets, but just the regular stores as well. Prices are really not too bad, and you can live quite well. So, it uh, yes, it's, it's not too unfeasible to spending good amounts of time here in Iceland once you make those right connections and, and do things more like the locals would. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I know I had kind of made it uh, a line item in my personal budget when I mm -hmm. first started thinking, okay, I'm going to come back as much as I can. Mm -hmm. um, but 
it really was only possible for me to do that and spend big chunks of my summer in Iceland because I had wonderful friends and family who were willing to host me for chunks of time. So that made, that made the ultimate difference. But yes, not eating at restaurants all Mm -hmm. the time. If you can like cook a few of your own meals, if you're traveling around and you don't mind living on peanut butter and Mm -hmm. jelly sandwiches or something. Yeah. Or uh, skier. Or skier or yeah, some of the, (laughs) the less uh, expensive options, Mm -hmm. you definitely can make your trip a little bit more financially manageable. Yes. And another reason for really emphasizing your Icelandic roots and connecting with the wonderful Icelandic people, whether or not you have personal connections or not. Um, On a bit more of a personal story, my homestay last year was such a distant relative that it was essentially like staying with a stranger. Uh, Anyone who I was more closely related to were either busy that summer or not around. So I ended up being matched with someone who I was more, they were more closely related to the person who was making the (laughs) homestays. Yeah. But she also found that I was actually distantly related to them as well, which on some level you can kind of trace that to anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, you can find some far back connection. So that showed me that even if I was just a stranger here, someone with no personal Icelandic connection, the people here can be so welcoming if you're willing to make that connection to them. And you can find these opportunities to maybe live with a family or just uh, spend time with a local and learn from them. Maybe go on like a tour with them or a hike or something. And in many ways, the best things can be free as well. Just some of the hikes that I do here, living in Hofsos, just walking around. Very basic, but like, wow, profound. Going down by the basalt columns. There's really a lot of magical things to experience, all for free. So, Mallory, what are some of your favorite aspects of the local area here and some of the most magical places that you love around Hofsos or just Iceland in general, maybe? Well, I would have to say activity-wise, wherever I am in Iceland, uh, I love to be involved with the horse life up Mm. here. Um, Horseback riding, I mean, I don't even mind if I'm like cleaning out a stable. I just kind of like to be around the animals. That to Mm -hmm. me is like some form of therapy just to kind of be involved in, uh, yeah, in that barn stable riding kind of environment and life and is the area here Skaga Fjordur mm-hmm. is this not I think I read that this was like the sort of hub of horsemanship from the get-go and yeah. still today I think they said I read somewhere that there's this is the only area where horses outnumber people okay yeah yeah so yeah. it's certainly big in in the area here yeah it's sort of considered the cradle of Icelandic horsemanship mm. um, the horse university is in yes. Holar which is just a 20-minute drive from Hofsos, maybe even less, 15 mm-hmm. minutes. Um, and I believe there's an old story from the settlement time that said the first horse that was brought over from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, mm-hmm. you know, from the, the Viking settlers was brought to the land. Uh, there was a storm or some reason that the ship broke mm. down or the horse jumped off the ship or something and it came to land in Kolkos, mm. which is just down the coast from Hofsos. Uh-huh. Um, I'll have to check my sources on that okay, one. Yeah, but I yeah, remember sure. I remember hearing that story and thinking, okay, so this uh. is truly like the beginning right, of right, the of, bloodline of here. In yeah. Iceland. Okay, maybe you don't know this exactly, but I'm curious now thinking about Icelandic horses. What sort of is their origin, besides obviously being brought here by the early settlers, but why is it that they're shorter than other horses and why they have some unique characteristics that other horses don't have like where did that come from initially 
So they've developed over, you know, a thousand plus years mm-hmm. since settlement um, and adapted to the scenery of Iceland and mm-hmm. to the environment here. And so they're sturdy and hardy and mm-hmm. uh, stocky animals for the most part. Um, my understanding is that the the settlers brought small, strong animals who mm-hmm. would fit more easily on the ship. Mm-hmm. So they weren't bringing their biggest, you know, war horses or whatever. Right. They were bringing smaller animals who would eat less on the ship, drink less on the ship, and just take up less space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they ended up with a smaller animal. And then over the years, of course, they were bred to um, be the most useful that they could be, given mm-hmm. what the people needed. Right. Um, after a certain point in settlement, very early on, um, they banned import of livestock Mm -hmm. and and so for the most part uh, i think horses and cows and and sheep mostly have not been allowed to be imported for you know a thousand years there might be some exceptions with sheep i feel like there was some little blip in 1800 and that caused some problems but yeah the Mm -hmm. horses certainly are a very pure breed Mm -hmm. and once they leave iceland if they're sent out for showing or Mm -hmm. are sold to someone in let's say germany they can never return Mm -hmm. So it's to protect the lines that are here. Right, right. And that makes sense uh, if they were bringing like smaller animals mm-hmm. just for the logistics side of bringing them here. And I guess this would have been the, like the longest sea voyage that any sort of medieval uh, European culture could have been making. There was no other areas where they would have to travel such a long distance uh, during that time period. And so it makes sense that they would bring these smaller animals. Um, and when they initially were not importing new animals here, was it that they literally had the foresight that that could bring diseases? Like, were they aware of such things back then? I'm not sure. Honestly, I am not. Because it seems like yeah. quite good foresight to know that living on an island, importing animals at some point you could be bringing in different diseases or different things but i suppose that could still come like just on the ships and from trade in general right i mean even now they don't let people if you're coming for a riding tour or something you're Mm -hmm. not allowed to bring like your own saddle Mm -hmm. or riding boots or something unless it has been very thoroughly disinfected Mm -hmm. um, and given a certificate of this disinfection by certified veterinarians or or people who are in charge of that sort of thing so maybe they were seeing diseases in mm-hmm. Europe that right, they weren't right. having here, and they thought, mm-hmm. okay, we won't bring animals in. I'm not sure how well, aware they were of that. It could have also been to just not change the bloodline, too, that they thought, we have some really good horses here. Let's not bring other ones in to mix with them. So yeah. could have been a number of things. But regardless, it seems like that, whatever foresight they had has served them well because you could imagine how devastating uh, something could be if you're – you know, constantly importing animals and you bring in some different disease and it could just wipe out all the livestock. Now, you were mentioning the other day to me a certain way that Icelanders train their horses, which I thought was quite interesting. You were contrasting it with ways that they would train and raise horses in other cultures. So maybe you could explain that a bit. might be interesting to our audience. So, I mean, of course, there's exceptions to every rule, but Mm -hmm. my understanding in Iceland versus what I've seen in North America, uh, for a lot of breeds at least, is that Icelanders really let their horses grow up being a horse, not being a horse under the management of a human. Mm -hmm. So for example, 
uh, an Icelander may take the one-year-old foal who has had very little human contact. It's grown up up until that point in its life out on a lovely field with the rest of the herd. Um, and at one-year-old, maybe you bring the horse in and you do some very minor training. You mm -hmm. teach it to uh, wear a halter and follow around on a lead. Uh, maybe maybe you learn uh, teach him to pick up his feet for you so that it can get proper hoof care. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you maybe you do this for a week or two, and then you just kind of send them back out mm -hmm. with their herd, and you let them continue to grow and uh, gain confidence in the fact that they are a horse and learn from the herd what they need to do mm -hmm. um, and how to be the best horse that they can be, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, and then maybe again at two years and three years, you bring them in and kind of build upon that training, uh, hoping that they have taken in that, those bits of knowledge that you've given them each year and kind of thought about it and thought, okay, these humans aren't so scary. They didn't kill me. They didn't eat me. Um, so now I'm going to trust them, you know, building that trust little mm. by little while still allowing them to be kind of wild mm. and, uh, yeah, build their sure-footedness and confidence. Yeah, yeah, I find that very fascinating. It seems a very wholesome approach as well. And it does make me think of just in general, the livestock here, whether it's the sheep, especially the sheep, mm -hmm. but you just see the horses, the cows, the goats, the way they walk around on the landscape and certainly the, the sheep, they definitely seem to get outside of, I think it's so funny when people are building and rebuilding fences <laughs> here. It's like the sheep are just going to get anywhere anyways. Um, but the way they interact with the environment here, it's, I feel like they, they fill a niche that is left emptied here. You know, there was never any mammals here, uh, land mammals besides Arctic fox. And even those, I don't know when they came before human settlement, but those were a relative newcomer as well. They mm -hmm. would have drifted over here on sea ice, I think from Greenland. Yeah. And so they weren't like original, um, original from the land i mean nothing was if the island literally is just coming out of right, the ocean, up from the ocean yeah. um but yeah it seems like the livestock in iceland really just fills this void that i can't imagine what it would be like without the sheep on the side of the road here you know it really would feel like a depleted and an empty landscape without the livestock that exists around here yeah i mean they're certainly doing their part to uh, graze down some of the grass which mm -hmm. then grows better mm -hmm. uh, in years after and can create better grazing for not only other sheep the next years but horses you know they'll kind of eat down more than maybe some other animals would mm -hmm. um, they certainly do go on the road and you have to be careful <laughs> of them they're not always behind fences and up mm -hmm. in the mountains where they're supposed to be during the summer when they're free um, but yeah I mean they're they're out fertilizing and doing their part to spread seeds and things mm -hmm. caught in their wool i'm sure yeah yeah a bit of a anecdotal story maybe but i think it has some weight to it the homestay that i had last year they were very close to the sea their farm and uh the homestay dad rano uh he was showing me sort of the landscape there and out maybe four kilometers was the black sand beaches and there was a section that now had plant life growing on it and he said they've literally like reclaimed this land it was just desolate nothing growing there and it's because of spreading manure out and they've sort of built up the soil thanks to their farm animals and okay. spreading fertilizer out towards the sea they've been able to reclaim more land for plants to grow so 
I think, uh, yeah, the farming practices here seem very wholesome and uh, a very, yeah, very nice aspect of Icelandic life as well. Other interesting things that you'd like to do in the area? I mean, the pool, of course, is lovely. The Hofsos right, pool is kind of a destination for a lot of people mm -hmm. coming through the area. The restaurant and, here is fantastic. Uh, the restaurant has amazing food. One day, uh, Sierra and I, when we were working at the museum, of course, and then afterwards we went to the pool and then we went to the restaurant as well. I said, we literally just did the trifecta of Hofsos tourism. <laughs> it is. We went to the museum. That's number one. Number two, go to the pool. Number three, go to the restaurant. Those are the three top things to do. And then a bonus one, I guess, is just going on walks. Absolutely. Like walking out of the ocean here with the basalt columns is fantastic. And even going out in other directions is wonderful as well. Yeah, there's not a ton to do in Hofsos, but you definitely could make a good day or two mm -hmm. um, and stay very busy and feel, I think, pretty satisfied with your travels, especially if you are willing to go out and mm -hmm. hike around and get involved with nature a little bit. If you're very adventurous, you could book a Drungay tour from the port here. That is truly exciting, mm -hmm. especially if you're not afraid of heights. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a few <laughs> parts of the climb up the island uh, that might have you a little bit scared, but it is absolutely worth it to get up to the top and see the puffins mm -hmm. and the beautiful wildflowers and just the views from the island. It's spectacular. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who aren't very familiar, maybe we could talk about Skagafjörður geography a little bit. Yeah. And I didn't really appreciate how special this geographic location was. Obviously, living here, it's like, yeah, everything is beautiful and it's fantastic, but kind of all of Iceland is beautiful and fantastic. Right. <laughs> but then Bill pointed out in his book, uh, the, uh, the Windows of Brimness, uh, he, he said that, I forget how he worded it exactly, but if he could award a fjord for the best geography he would give it to this one so he was saying that this is the best fjord in all of iceland okay that some fjords the mountains are so high on the other side that it's claustrophobic that it makes it dark it blocks out the light especially when the sun is going down some of them are too narrow all these different things he says skaga fjorder where hofsos is here is a very wide fjord the mountains around it are very large and majestic but they're sort of rounded. They're not tall and jagged. They don't block out the light. And uh, just the way it goes out into the ocean, looking to the north there. And you can imagine the Arctic Circle is not too far out that way. No, not At far. some point, when do you differentiate really is the Atlantic mixing and mingling enough that it becomes the Arctic Ocean? Right. Right. It's kind of a funny distinction. But then also you have these islands out here. So Drongate looks so majestic when it's not foggy like it is now, actually. Uh, you can see Drange out there on the horizon. And then to the right further yet is, I guess this is maybe considered a cape. It's not an island. It's connected it's like a headland. to the land. Yeah. And that is Thorderhapfi. And then just a bit beyond that is Malme, another island. And so those land masses with their big cliffs also sort of add, you're not just looking out to the sea, you're looking out to these really incredible masses of rock that are these islands and it really is such a special fjord and when i look at the map of iceland it really kind of is the widest it's the longest it seems like a very special place and so i think yeah like what a incredible fjord to to be here in and just the views are special and the landscape is really quite magical 
I do have to say I appreciate uh, the geography of Skagafjörður and uh, of this town, mm -hmm. especially in, well, in the summer it's lovely, but in the winter, the fact that uh, this fjord is kind of a north-south uh -huh. fjord uh, and the fact that it is wide open means that we don't have any of those months with no sunlight mm -hmm. like many of the east-west fjords mm -hmm. or uh, some of the more narrow ones might. Um, I know my cousins live out in Falstrufjörður in the East Fjords, and they, I think they have like a two to three month period of time where they get no direct sunlight wow. in the town because of the angle of the low angle of the sun at that time of year, of course, and then the direction of the mountains and the height of the mountains. Um, yeah. And I would have a very hard time with that. I have okay. a hard enough time, mm -hmm. uh, even when the sun does kind of peek up over yeah. the horizon here yeah. for a few minutes. On the darkest days, uh, even that is a little too dark for me. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, tough, as I could imagine. But I also commend you for having experienced that. I feel like, uh, for me, having just been to Iceland in the summer, I can never really fully know the place until I've been here. Maybe not for the entire winter. I don't know if I would want to do that. But at least just, like, a little bit of time to right. at least see what that is like. And certainly, like... You know, I'm fairly north where I live in Canada as mm -hmm. well, and it gets quite dark when the sun sets at, you know, 4 p.m., um, but it's different. I, I couldn't imagine what it's like when, or, or if you are living in a fjord where it makes it even that much darker. Um, I think uh, I read something of Barry Lopez wrote this, and he spent a lot of time in the far, far north, so above the Arctic Circle, northern Canada. And uh, he spent a lot of time with indigenous people from there as well. And certainly they're like actually experiencing periods with literally no sun. Yeah. Even if it's a wide open space with no mountains, the sun just does not come up over the horizon on the shortest day of the year. And uh, he talked about this in a very sort of metaphysical way. But he said, maybe the darkness is good too. And just that sentence, I thought, yeah, you know... In today's world, we always think like, oh, the light is good. The sun is fantastic. Like, I need the sunshine. Like, mm -hmm. oh, when it's dark, it's no good. But he thought maybe there's some aspect of that where the darkness is good. Maybe it teaches you something. Maybe there's lessons there. Maybe there's a different mode of being that you experience living through the darkness that can also be good in a different sort of way. Sure. Good in a way that us modern people maybe don't understand because good to us is like, the good life, living in sunshine, right? You know, having all all the sort of luxuries of life that we can't imagine that maybe isolation or darkness could ever be good for us. Mm -hmm. But within those, there could be some profound lessons that, uh, if you never experience in your life at least once, maybe you're missing out on something. Who knows? But that sort of struck me to think that I should aim to spend some time in a place where it does get that much darker in the winter. And also spending time in more isolated places as well, away from, you know, the big hustle and bustle of society. And I do get a taste of that living here in Bribness. I did, uh, I did have a moment, I don't know, maybe a few weeks ago now that it's been, you know, broad daylight, even mm -hmm. in the middle of the night. Um, we're starting to get a little bit darker in the evenings, especially on the cloudy days. You can yeah. notice around midnight, like, okay, it's mm -hmm. it's starting to think about yeah. getting dark. But it's still just like a dusk. Yeah, it's not it's, dark, dark by any means. Yeah, and in my house, uh, the 
curtains don't completely block out the light. Mm -hmm. So there's always this little strip around each of the windows where the, the sunshine is peeking in even at midnight when I'm trying to go to bed. And so despite the fact that all this past winter I was thinking, oh my gosh, I just want it to be light all the time. How, you know, how am I surviving this? I need the sunshine. A few weeks ago, I had a moment as I was trying to close my blinds tighter of thinking, ah, oh, why can't it just be dark? And I, I like had to bite my tongue right away because uh -huh. ultimately I would prefer the light over the constant darkness. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. you know, a balance is nice. Yeah, yeah, no, certainly. And yeah, I guess you don't know what you, you got till it's gone is a very cliche saying, mm -hmm. but there is something about that balance that is important to, uh, to, to life but I, I certainly have been enjoying the lightness yes. here and I've been kind of able to choose my waking and sleeping hours a bit more mm -hmm. uh, normally back home if I'm not waking up early with the sunrise I feel you know bad about myself like I'm missing out on valuable daylight uh, but here I've been able to go to bed at around midnight mm -hmm. and then wake up at closer to 9 to 10. Mm -hmm. It helps that the museum doesn't open till 11, so I'm not actually having to be anywhere till a bit later in the morning as well. Uh, but being able to kind of choose, like, okay, I can stay up late and wake up late, but I don't feel like I'm being lazy. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm missing out on the day or that I'm sleeping into the morning. I just feel like this is a regular uh, routine for me. So it is kind of nice to be able to choose your hours when there is a bit more uh, daylight to work around. Absolutely. And I know, you know, the, I think the timing of, of life for the, this, the speed of life kind of shifts here mm -hmm. in the summer. Everyone is really enjoying the nature as much mm -hmm. as they can and getting out and taking full advantage of the 24 hour daylight. And in the winter things slow down yeah. and people spend more time at home or at friends' homes having coffee and, mm -hmm. and dinners together and, and doing more kind of cozy activities. Right. right. No, so that, that's something that, that Barry Lopez remarked on with the peoples of the Arctic is that it's sort of like those two different lifestyles. You mm -hmm. live a lot differently in the summer than you do in the winter. Yeah. And definitely in modern societies, even if you are quite northerly in, well, not northern Canada, but, you know, most of Canada where there's cities, which is close to the border, mm -hmm. uh, even in those areas where I live or even northern United States, where you do get more darkness in the winter, we don't really change our lifestyles. Yeah. We try to still keep up with the same sort of nine to five life and the same amount of busyness as we had in the summertime. Certainly you're getting out less on hikes and that sort of thing, but we don't really change our lifestyles as much. And that may be something that when you are living in such a northerly place, you have to accept that these are two different ways of living. The summer and the winter are two different lifestyles, which is, again is not something we're used to as modern people no that followed more of the i think the agricultural yeah, times yeah. in the past where people had of course there were different duties to perform in different times of the year mm -hmm. um, but winter when the animals were maybe safe in the barn mm -hmm. and you just fed them a few times a day and mm -hmm. cleaned up a little bit there was you know maybe you were limited a bit into what you did when there's yeah. big storms outside and it's dark you just kind of stay home and stay cozy mm -hmm. and in the summer you make hay and yep, repair things and yeah do all the things that you can do yeah. that you can't in the winter yeah yeah i think industrial society has really changed those traditional routines that we've had uh so it's a lot to think about now maybe let's get back a bit just to genealogy and that aspect and for you working at the museum you do a lot of actually sitting down with people 
people who have maybe even never looked into a database of genealogy like Icelandic roots and they maybe just had a name or they've only looked at an old book or something and what's it like for you helping these people through and this is something that I will hope to do more of uh, during my next month here at the museum to get some of this experience myself but what is that like there must be some sort of magic when you're helping people to find these connections and to just do that genealogy work for them, finding these relatives. Yeah, it's absolutely my favorite part of working at the museum uh -huh. is connecting to the people who come in, usually clutching a little <laughs> packet of information, yeah. whether it be notes from uh, some relative or mm. photocopies of something from a book or photos or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, and they say, oh, I want to, you know, I want to look up information. Mm. Can you tell me what you have here? Mm. And do you have information on so-and-so from this area mm -hmm. and sometimes the names are incorrect due to you know or i shouldn't say incorrect they were maybe a name that had been taken in canada that was mm -hmm. completely different than the canadian or the than the icelandic name mm -hmm. that would have been registered mm -hmm. uh in our records here um so if someone comes in and they say yes my grandfather was you know john um cartinson <laughs> or something and they're determined no that was his name mm -hmm. john cartinson say mm -hmm. well you know, that probably wasn't exactly the spelling. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it was a Jón Kjartansson mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, they don't necessarily have the dates or things. Mm -hmm. um, some people have all of the information mm -hmm. that I could ever hope to share with them already. Mm -hmm. um, and other people may might have barely names and dates. Mm -hmm. um, and despite what they may or may not already have, due to the really great resources we have between Icelandic roots and the different print materials uh -huh. uh, in the genealogy library there, we're almost always able to find something that the people didn't know before. Right. Um, and for some, it's such an emotional experience. Mm. I've had probably at least one person each summer mm. uh, burst into tears, you know, when they see a photo they've never wow. seen before of yeah. a great grandparent um, or a great, great aunt or whatever it mm. might be, some connection that they didn't have before walking into our genealogy center. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really beautiful. I mean, I can see my own history, genealogy history reflected in mm -hmm. in their journey to mm -hmm. find that. Um, and you see how much that has opened up for you. So you can imagine unlocking that for other people, the possibilities that that can unravel. Absolutely. And especially if we can find a place where maybe their great-grandfathers or grandmothers were living before they left Iceland for the United States or Canada, or a birthplace, or mm. uh, maybe a, the place where someone is buried from their genealogy, and knowing that I can then send them to that place and they can stand on that land mm -hmm. where their forefathers and mothers stood yeah. is really special. Mm. Uh, and I've had that experience myself, getting to stand on the farm site, no longer a farm mm. or a house there, but just standing on the land that I knew that my great-grandfather had lived and mm. walked on for mm -hmm. a time. Uh, there's something really magical about that. And so and if I can help others connect to that as well, it just makes my day. Yeah, no, it's quite the thing. And still more to be done, right? Like oh, there's yeah. always different dots to connect. And I think we were talking about this earlier, but the fact that Iceland was a smaller still is a smaller population mm -hmm. they've been able to trace their genealogy mm -hmm. and their record keeping and all those sorts of things it's a unique aspect but there's always 
things to unravel still. There's photographs to find. There's different connections to make. And going into future generations, just today, right, you added two folks to the database on the non-Icelandic side mm -hmm. uh, that came into the museum here today and wanted to go through uh, Icelandic roots with you here. So yep. there's always things to add. Yeah, the non-Icelandic partner of mm -hmm. an Icelandic descendant and then their son mm -hmm. who had, you know, partial Icelandic yes. yeah. genealogy and this kid who was just going to be starting high school in the fall mm. um he was so excited about <laughs> the genealogy and usually we get kids who are you know 14 years old mm -hmm. who maybe walk into the museum and they're looking at their phone and they're i'll wait outside or whatever after they've made one cursory uh -huh. you know breeze through the exhibits and i was so excited because this kid was with his parents and he was like oh that's that's uncle you know skooky oh my gosh hey is that the mm -hmm. one who Grandma said, did this, mm. that, and the other. And, you know, mm -hmm. He was so excited about it. Mm. He was taking pictures, even though his, his mom was taking pictures uh -huh, of uh -huh. the books that we found and whatever. He wanted his own copy, right, too. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it was really cool to see like that younger, youngest generation mm -hmm. really coming in. And he yeah. was so excited. And then, yeah, to be able, he was so excited that he would be able to go on to Icelandic roots mm. and find out how he was related to all of the Icelandic footballers because okay. he's very into... Wow football yeah. soccer um, that, that same family actually they asked me about hockey in okay, Iceland yeah. and I actually I had no answers to give mm -hmm. whether they played here at all have you ever seen anything to do with I know there are like some I think not like big yeah, teams just like but some local there are teams. people who yeah. play here but the biggest thing I know about Icelanders and hockey was in Winnipeg, there uh -huh. was a team comprised of all Icelanders or Icelandic descendants. I think it was the Falcons yeah, in yeah, Winnipeg. Yeah, I should know this as well. My Avi really enjoyed that story and had their picture okay. up in his house as well. Yeah. I'm sure many of our listeners too will be familiar. So that's really... Mm -hmm. As yeah, much as I know about Icelanders and hockey. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think it picked up over, of course, in Canada, which is hockey yeah, central. Yeah, yeah but, certainly. Yeah. Um, I don't but think it's so ever much. been a thing here in yeah. a country full of ice. Exactly. Yeah, there'd yeah. be some good marketing, an Icelandic hockey team. Right. Uh, I just think of uh, the movie The Mighty Ducks mm. from back in the <laughs> early 90s or whenever uh -huh. that came out. And the, the evil... Mm. Uh, team mm -hmm. were from Iceland oh, it was really? the yes it was the American okay. team in the maybe in the second movie where they were yeah. like an international tournament uh -huh. and the Icelander team huh. were the bad team <laughs> well now I know yeah yeah there's there's always these funny mm -hmm. uh sort of media connections <laughs> to Iceland and usually they're not like very mm -hmm. you know uh, uh well thought out yeah, <laughs> yeah it's Iceland can be like a funny sort of uh, trick in I mean it's just the name itself mm -hmm. I think stirs up the imagination uh, but yeah yeah the genealogy can be very cool I think too and maybe for younger generations growing up today it can be easy to feel lost in the world things certainly seem to be getting more and more confusing yeah. <laughs> uh, it's funny you would think the more interconnected the world gets the more things would make sense the more we would understand about each other, and the more things would smooth out. But mm -hmm. it seems to be, I think that's true in some cases. Sure. Like, I certainly have learned so much about the world that I don't think I would have any grasp of if I was living myself in Iceland 100 years ago or in Canada 100 years ago. No. Just the access to information that I have has taught me so much. But then also there is a big confusion aspect. And especially growing up, it could just be so much and you're... 
attention is pulled in so many different directions that I think it could be very meaningful if you can place yourself in uh, history, place yourself in a family tree, kind of right. know where I come from, what my ancestry is, what countries and cultures I'm connected to. Um, I think that can be very important for people coming up in today's world of confusion and global interconnectedness it can be very easy to feel disconnected and to feel lost that I think these things can actually help the younger generation and get them very excited if they're showed uh, what it is and mm -hmm. how, how they're connected to history and how it connects to the things they're interested in now you uh -huh. know for this kid uh -huh. to see like oh okay this is a, a yes, footballer right. that I admire mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I can see that we're seventh cousins or whatever it yeah. would be yeah it can connect you more to the current world too not just to history right and, yeah, and so maybe help you loop. to develop your vision for the future as well, where you see yourself in the future. So there is really, truly a magic to genealogy, one that I actually didn't understand when I was younger. No, I saw these no, big books of I. history and genealogy in my Avi's library, and I thought that was just very boring stuff. Oh, yeah, your eyes glaze over. Mm -hmm, it's, you mm -hmm. know, what kind of, what kid would be interested in that? But <laughs> truly, like, if you're, if it's brought to... I think a child's attention in the right mm -hmm. way it can mm -hmm. be fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. when we have, of course, kids are generally interested in technology. And mm -hmm. so when you have mm -hmm. something like the Icelandic Roots database yes. and the, yeah, just the different tools that it has on there and kids can interact with it in a way that you maybe don't interact with an old genealogy tomb, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think it could yeah. make but a then big difference I, I, for kids. I found a lot of joy in those old books now. Oh, of and course. And I really enjoy yeah. reading them. But I had to go the roundabout way to discovering them, at least my interest in them. Um, yeah, and it's funny how genealogy does connect to everything. Like this podcast here for Icelandic Roots is technically a genealogy podcast. Sure. And the community is technically a genealogy community. But what does that really mean? Genealogy kind of encompasses everything. Oh, yeah. Because it's about humans. It's about our history. It's about our family connections. It's about our interests. Mm -hmm. The reasons why we move places the reasons why we stay the, the different connections of the places that we have lived yeah mm -hmm. and so it kind of encompasses all of these things and so you can start a conversation like we have uh saying like let's you know talk about our connection to a place based on genealogy and what does that unravel well all the different things we talked about your interests in the nature your interests in the ecology the the cultural aspects language language uh all of these different things are encompassed in it so it really is broad and it very much is uniting which i find a lot of pleasure and joy in being able to connect with people like yourself doing something like this based in genealogy but then branching out into all these different facets of human life it's a lot of fun so uh as we maybe wrap up here is there anything else you would like to say you know, if you haven't been to Hofso's, please come and see us mm -hmm. and come to the museum and have a look around. Whether or not you have Icelandic ancestry, I think yes. that the, the history aspect of the museum can be interesting for people regardless of their background. Mm. Oh, certainly. Um, yeah. And so it's a beautiful town to visit, especially in the summertime. Yeah, yeah. But maybe in the winter, too. In the winter, too, if you don't mind it being a little more dim. Yeah, because there might be something good about the darkness, too. Absolutely, yeah. Something that might be worth exploring, like you have. Definitely. So, yes. Thank you for doing this podcast with me, Mallory, and thank you all for listening. Maybe uh, we didn't really talk about language so much, so you... Have developed your language abilities quite well and 
really impresses someone like myself who has a smau smau <laughs> command of the Icelandic language. So maybe you can end this off with a a farewell or a few words in Icelandic for our audience. Yeah, I will say to our audience, Takk uh, for Thank you all for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you are not familiar with Icelandic Roots, we are a nonprofit organization that aims to connect people of Icelandic descent with their ancestral roots. Our mission here is to preserve and share Icelandic heritage by providing resources for genealogical research, promoting cultural education, and supporting Icelandic communities around the world. We offer a variety of services for people who are interested in tracing their Icelandic ancestry. We have a comprehensive database that contains information well over 1 million Icelanders and their descendants, as well as resources for genealogical research, such as access to Icelandic census records, church records, and other historical documents, such as pictures, farm locations, everything you could possibly need for tracing Icelandic ancestry. I would say that the best way to get involved with us is first and foremost to visit our website, icelandicroots.com. There you'll find information on how to become a member, if you aren't one already, to access our genealogical database and connect with other people of Icelandic descent. You'll also find there information on upcoming events, which there are a lot of coming up this year for 2023 and beyond, and other initiatives such as our annual Icelandic Roots conference activities and all sorts of things pertaining to that. So I would uh, just like to encourage anyone who is listening to this and interested in learning more about their Icelandic heritage or potential Icelandic heritage, or if you don't think you have any Icelandic ancestry, just to visit our website and explore the resources that we have available. There are tons of blog posts and the newsletter I would encourage anyone to sign up for, which is valuable information about Icelandic culture in general and all sorts of historical gems, whether you are a first-generation Icelandic American or just curious about your ancestry, about Icelandic culture and history in general, Icelandic Roots here is ready to help for you to discover your roots and to connect with the Icelandic diaspora and the culture at large. So once again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Takk fyrir, bless, bless.